Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Charles Manson's Hollywood. Last week, we detailed the August 1969 murders that sent shockwaves through Los Angeles, the entertainment industry, and the world. It would be months before Charles Manson and his quote-unquote family members were charged with the killings of Sharon Tate, Rosemary LaBianca, and five other people, even though the Los Angeles sheriff already had Manson associate Bobby Beausoleil in custody for killing Gary Hinman, and the Manson family had specifically styled their later killings after the Hinman crime scene so that investigators would think they were committed by the same entity. For months, nobody in the general public or in Hollywood knew who committed these crimes or why. They had suspicions, and because suspicions were all they had to go on, paranoia filled the vacuum of information. The Manson murders occurred the weekend before Woodstock, remembered by many as the peak of the good vibe era of the 1960s. But already, on the West Coast, the good vibes were withering away, replaced by fear. It would be two months before they'd arrest Manson, and it wasn't until December 1st that the LAPD announced to the public that they'd crack the case. Five days after that was Altamont, the free concert partially organized by the Grateful Dead and the Rolling Stones, which was supposed to have been the West Coast analog to Woodstock. It wasn't. In fact, the Dead didn't even end up playing, because while the Rolling Stones were on stage, an 18-year-old fan named Meredith Hunter, who was high on speed and who had a gun, was stabbed by Alan Pissarro, a member of the Hells Angels, who were hired to provide security at the event. Hunter had tried to rush the stage, and Pissarro claimed he was sure he had thwarted an assassination attempt. But over the years, Altamont would become a kind of code word for the good intentions of the hippie era, devolving into bad. By the time the 1970s officially began a few weeks after Altamont, the peace and love essence of the youth culture had given way to overwhelming paranoia. In the middle of all of this, Roman Polanski who just a year earlier had become the newest, hottest director in Hollywood with the smash hit Rosemary's Baby, tried to put his life back together. Today we'll follow Polanski from the moment he returned to Los Angeles from London, the day after his wife's death, at which point the LAPD considered Polanski to be a suspect, through the unusual methods Polanski resorted to in an effort to help find Tate's killer, 
Through Polanski's return to filmmaking and his arguable career peak, Chinatown. And of course, we'll talk about the incident with a teenage girl, which, in addition to seriously complicating his legacy, has left Polanski unable to physically return to Hollywood. Join us, won't you, for the story of Roman Polanski after Sharon Tate. On the morning of Sunday, August 10th, 1969, a heavily medicated Robin Blansky was given a special emergency visa and put on a Pan Am flight from London to Los Angeles. When he arrived, photographers and reporters were at LAX waiting for him. The director tried to hide behind dark glasses and ignored the questions being shouted from all directions about his dead wife. He was whisked into a car and brought to the Paramount lot, where he could hide out in a dressing room which had recently belonged to Julie Andrews while she was shooting The Sound of Music. Polanski was completely out of it for the next three days, thanks to a combination of grief and sedation. It was over those three days, when Polanski was out of sight, that rumors started to spread like a canyon fire. The newspapers reported that Polanski and Tate were having problems, leading readers to infer that Roman wanted Sharon dead. Incapable of answering such charges two days after his wife's death, Polanski allowed his friend Jean Gakowski to release a statement on Monday morning, explaining Polanski's absence from the house at the time of the murders, and calling Roman and his wife, quote, a storybook couple deeply in love and expecting a much-wanted baby. The statement didn't do much to counteract the growing suggestion in media reports and in cocktail chatter that the murders happened because somebody in that house had done something to deserve it. Newsweek invoked both black magic and voodoo in one report, dropping blind items like, quote, a group of friends speculates that the murders resulted from a ritual mock execution that got out of hand in the glare of hallucinogens. Time magazine was one of a number of publications to connect the real-life terror that had occurred on Cielo Drive to the invented terror in Polanski's movies, describing the massacre as, quote, a scene as grisly as anything depicted in Polanski's film explorations of the dark and melancholy corners of human characters. Journalist Joe Hyams, who had introduced Sharon to Jay Sebring and whose wife had co-starred with Sharon in The Wrecking Crew, wrote an article called Why Sharon Tate Had to Die, blaming the murders on Mr. and Mrs. Polanski's habit of supposedly inviting strangers home for orgies. A detective on the case told Life magazine, You wouldn't believe how weird these people were. If you live like that, what do you expect? Such pronouncements probably had something to do with the fact that, in searching the house, the LAPD found enough drugs from the marijuana and cocaine in Sebring's car to Frykowski's stashes of mescaline and MDA to 30 grams of hash in plain sight on Folger's nightstand, that they initially believed that the killings either had something to do with a drug deal gone bad, or that somebody wanted it to appear that way. They also found at least one film of Polanski and Tate having sex. 
even amongst Polanski and Tate's supposed friends and colleagues, facts got twisted on the grapevine. Possibly doing a black comedy bit? Buck Henry told a group of guests at producer Bob Rafelson's house that Sharon's breast had been severed and was found in the bread box, while Jay Sebring's penis had been slashed off and hidden in the glove compartment of his Ferrari. Dennis Hopper, who considered himself to be a close friend of Jay Sebring's, told an L.A. newspaper that he believed the murders were retaliation for an incident that had occurred at the Cielo Drive house that was itself meant as a retaliation for a drug deal gone bad. According to Hopper, Sebring paid $2,000 for what turned out to be bad cocaine. And then the hairdresser invited the drug dealer over to his pregnant ex-girlfriend's house to enact his revenge. They'd fallen into sadism and masochism and bestiality, and they recorded it all on videotape, too. The L.A. police told me this. I know that three days before they were killed, 25 people were invited to that house to a mass whipping of a dealer from Sunset Strip who'd given them bad dope. Those who didn't have victim-blaming theories clamored to be almost victims. Everyone said... I was supposed to be there that night. If half the people who were supposed to have been there that night had been there, it would have rivaled Jonestown, said Buck Henry. Everyone wanted to talk about the murders all the time, and doing so just made everyone more afraid. Old Guard stars, including Jerry Lewis and Connie Stevens, reportedly spared no expense outfitting their mansions with the highest tech security. Beverly Hills sporting goods stores started selling out of guns, the guard dog market exploded. Of course, rich people could spend big money on protection, but non-rich people who couldn't afford $1,500 for a guard dog, they were terrified too. The funerals took place on Wednesday, August 13th. Sharon Tate was buried in her favorite Poochie print mini dress. Warren Beatty, Peter Sellers, Kirk Douglas, and Lee Marvin were there. Mia Farrow wasn't, she was too afraid. Neither was Steve McQueen, who decided that one funeral a day was all he could handle. He went to Jay Sebring's instead of Sharon's, packing a pistol under his jacket for protection. The day before she was buried, Tate's two highest quality films, Valley of the Dolls and The Fearless Vampire Killers, were rushed into re-release. The day after she was buried, the LAPD brought Roman Polanski in for questioning. Even though there was ample proof that Tate's husband had been in London when her murder was committed, as far as the Los Angeles police were concerned, that didn't necessarily mean he wasn't involved. In his autobiography, Polanski referred to his interrogations as exploratory sessions. At one, a lieutenant told Polanski that they were curious about similarities between Tate's murder and a murder that they thought had been committed at the order of a hippie guru living on a ranch in Chatsworth. In both cases, there were messages in blood written on the walls. Polanski told the cop that he was being guided by, quote, anti-hippie bias. After three nights, Polanski was ready to move out of the dressing room at Paramount, and he moved into the Malibu beach house of director Michael Sarn, who was then filming Myra Breckenridge. Neighbors circulated a petition trying to get Polanski to leave on the grounds that his presence made the community a target for more killings. 
The petition failed, but Polanski soon moved in with production designer Dick Silbert in a different section of Malibu. Even if the LAPD initially suspected that Polanski was involved, as with William Gerritsen, a lie detector test soon cleared the grieving widower. Meanwhile, Polanski suspected everyone else. He became determined to help the detective solve the case, or even single-handedly find the killer himself. On August 16th, Polanski held a press conference at the hotel where Warren Beatty lived. He announced a $25,000 reward for the capture of Tate's killer, with cash put up by Beatty and other stars. Fake tips that led nowhere came flooding in. Just over a week after the murders, Polanski gathered his courage and returned to the Cielo Drive house. Not to live, but to survey the scene, in the hopes that maybe he could find a clue that the investigators had missed. He brought along Tommy Thompson, a friend and Life magazine reporter, and photographer Julian Wasser. Roman thought that if he let journalists he trusted document the visit, it would help set the record straight. According to Polanski, a clairvoyant appeared on the scene and tried to talk his way into the house, and Polanski, desperate for any answer, led him into the house where the psychic took Polaroids, which he later sold. According to Wasser, he took the Polaroids and gave them to a psychic at Polanski's request. The photographer remembered that there was still a feeling in the air that you couldn't trust the police, that they were the establishment, and that artists like he and Polanski were on a closer wavelength to a self-proclaimed expert in psychic vibrations because at least the three of them acknowledged a wavelength. Polanski didn't find a clue that day. He did find a drawer full of photos of Sharon in a room that she had been in the process of transforming into a nursery. When he opened the drawer... Polanski broke down in tears. Polanski came to believe that the killer was close to him, that it was a friend or a member of his larger social scene. The police thought that this was a valid suspicion and helped him go undercover to spy on his friends. Under the LAPD's direction, Roman bugged his friends' houses and tested their car handles for bloodstains. The police gave Polanski a pair of horn-rimmed glasses that had been found at the scene, and Polanski bought a lens-measuring device and started surreptitiously measuring the prescriptions of all of his glasses-wearing friends. When Bruce Lee, who was training Polanski in martial arts at the time, mentioned that he lost his glasses, Roman took Bruce to an eye doctor to buy him a new pair as a gift, and to rule him out as a suspect. Suspecting that John Phillips might have killed Sharon to get Polanski back for sleeping with Michelle Phillips, Polanski snuck into John's garage to test his sports car for bloodstains. Later, when Phillips was arrested for not paying traffic tickets on his Rolls Royce, John entrusted the keys to the car to Polanski and asked him to move his drugs. Polanski did as he was told, but he also searched the car and found Phillips' diary— and became convinced that Phillips' block letters looked eerily similar to the letters spelling out pig in blood on the Cielo front door. Polanski photocopied a few pages and sent them to a top handwriting expert, who charged $2,000 for an inconclusive report. 
Between his pro-am detective work and still ongoing bouts of physically debilitating grief, Polanski couldn't bring himself to go back to work. He tried to go on a location scout with Dick Silbert for the Day of the Dolphin, but Roman's heart wasn't in it, and he abandoned the film. Mike Nichols ended up making that movie a few years later, from a script by Buck Henry. Polanski also, by his own admission, started having sex again quite soon, perhaps a month after Sharon's death. And then one night in November 1969, Bob Helder, a detective on the case who had become something like a friend of Polanski's, confided over dinner that a woman in the central jail had turned snitch, relaying a story told to her by a fellow inmate about her role in the killing of Sharon Tate. The inmate, Virginia Graham, had come forward because she wanted Polanski's cash reward. She ended up sharing it with a young boy who had found the broken gun which Tex Watson had smashed over Wojciech Frakowski's head and then tossed into a random backyard. As soon as Polanski knew who was responsible for the killing of his wife, his obsession with avenging her death disappeared. But the grief stayed with him. In 1984, Polanski wrote, Before she died, I sailed a boundless, untroubled sea of expectation and optimism. Afterward, whenever conscious of enjoying myself, I felt guilty. He also felt haunted by memories of Tate for a long while, and guilt for not having been there that night. Not just because he was alive and Sharon wasn't, but because he was sure that if he had been there, he and Wojciech could have fought the killers off. After all, most of them were girls. After Tate's killers were found and locked up, Polanski decided nothing was left for him in Los Angeles. He had grown weary of the spotlight that followed him there, and he hated the way the media had covered the murders, spreading lies, half-truths, and exaggerations about himself, Sharon, and the other victims. He thought in Europe, even if the press didn't give him the apology he thought he deserved for the speculative coverage that had implicated him in his wife's death before the real killers were known— At the very least, maybe they'd leave him alone. He was wrong. In Paris, Polanski was hounded by the paparazzi. One night, he confronted a photographer who had followed him and forcibly took the film out of the guy's camera. When he tried to join an exclusive club in the Swiss Alps, Polanski was blackballed for his association with what was called that crime in Los Angeles. Instead, Roman formed his own club, of sorts, hanging out with a crew of teenage girls from the local boarding school. Polanski would idle in his car outside of their school dormitory and wait for his dates to sneak out and appear before him in the snow. Kathy, Madeline, Sylvia, and the others whose names I forgot played a fleeting but therapeutic role in my life. He later wrote, They were all between 16 and 19 years old. Schoolgirls no longer, but not yet worldly wise women with professional or marital ambitions. They took to visiting my chalet not necessarily to make love, although some of them did, but to listen to rock music and sit around the fire and talk. What drew them into my orbit was the lure of forbidden fruit. What drew Polanski to the girls? As he put it, They were not using their bodies to further their careers. They were not on the lookout for parts. They didn't want to hear about distribution rights or film finance, not even about the Manson murders. And they were more beautiful in a natural, cultish way than they ever would be again.
was a long time before Polanski felt ready to work again. Most of the scripts he received after the murders were horror, which was the last thing he felt like doing, except for maybe comedy. Eventually, he was drawn to the challenge of making a film of Macbeth, which he believed had never been done right. He collaborated on a script with Kenneth Tynan, the British drama critic turned head of the National Theatre. The Manson trial began just after Polanski signed a deal with Hugh Hefner, making Playboy the majority financier of Macbeth. The idea of a Shakespearean Playboy movie from the guy who lost his bombshell wife to Charles Manson made Macbeth a laughingstock amongst U.S. film critics before they even saw the movie. And when they did see it, they presumed it to be Polanski's way of purging the violent event that now defined his life and thereby his work. Polanski had specifically chosen the material because he thought that no one could accuse him of autobiography when adapting Shakespeare. It would take years, but Polanski's Macbeth is now considered by many to be one of the best Shakespeare film adaptations ever made. Polanski then went to Italy and made a small film called K, or What, which was released with an X rating in the States, the very fact of which made it headline news and prompted a derisive but not totally unsympathetic review from the New York Times' Vincent Canby, who called what a male chauvinist pig sort of comedy. Canby added, It is not consistently inspired in its lunacy, but it is so totally without redeeming social value that it should be protected and from time to time cherished. After that happened, Polanski settled in Rome with some friends and collaborators, establishing what Polanski called a commune in a rented mansion with a full-time staff. Polanski was happy to while away a few years there, despite the growing need for someone in the commune to earn some money. Then Jack Nicholson called, and so did Paramount co-chief Robert Evans, and they kept calling. They had a script they wanted Polanski to read, and they wouldn't take no for an answer. Evans even offered to produce the film himself, unheard of at the time for the head of a studio. He also promised to throw Polanski a Passover Seder at his house. So Polanski did the thing he least wanted to do. He went back to Los Angeles. The Seder was one for the ages, by the way. Kirk Douglas did the readings in Hebrew, and Warren Beatty wore a yarmulke. The problem with the original script for Chinatown, written by Robert Town, aside from the fact that it was 180 pages long and it didn't have anything to do with the neighborhood that gave the script its name, was that no one understood it. Not Robert Evans, who was nonetheless determined to make the movie the first under his own producing banner. Not Jack Nicholson, and definitely not Roman Polanski, who thought there was probably a masterpiece buried in Town's draft, but it was buried really deep. But excavation gave Polanski a mission. I'll fix it, he told Evans. Polanski moved into a rented house in the hills and sat down with town at Nathan Al's deli in Beverly Hills to give the screenwriter some tough love. Here's how Evans would describe their collaboration. Roman, intense, focused, punctual. Town, lethargic, scattered, perpetually late. Two brutal months of preparations with Roman not knowing whom to kill first. Town or Hera, 
town's white shaggy and shedding giant hunk of a sheepdog. After two months, Polanski and town got the script into shooting shape, but they couldn't agree on two things. Polanski wanted Jack Nicholson's character to sleep with Faye Dunaway's character, and town didn't. Also, Town wanted a happy ending, in which John Huston's incestuous patriarch dies, and Evelyn, Dunaway's victimized femme fatale, lives. And Polanski didn't. Polanski thought the beautiful blonde Evelyn had to die, preferably in Chinatown, so that the title would have some kind of direct correlation to the actual movie. Polanski and Town never came to an agreement, but Polanski got his way because he was the director. Despite his battles with town, some prima donna behavior from Dunaway and a cinematographer switch halfway through shooting, Chinatown would end up being one of Polanski's most painless productions, coming in six days ahead of schedule. And it would be pretty much unparalleled, even within that great wave of American cinema of the 70s, as a statement on justifiable paranoia and the futility of fighting the good fight against the inherently corrupt American establishment. Robert Evans had promised both Dunaway and Polanski that if they just finished the film, he would guarantee each of them either an Oscar or a Rolls Royce. Both were nominated, but the film's only Oscar went to Robert Town. By the time of the ceremony, Polanski didn't need the Rolls Royce. He'd gone back to Rome, He'd tried to use his newfound Hollywood heat to make another movie, Pirates, but it fell apart, and instead Polanski, itching to get back to work, quickly made The Tenant in Paris. He started going back and forth between Munich and Paris, started dating 15-year-old Natasha Kinski. He later swore he thought she was 17 and didn't find out the truth until he met her mother. And then he was invited to guest edit the Christmas 1976 issue of French Vogue. The issue was a huge hit, and soon Polanski was approached to do something for Vogue's French men's magazine offshoot. That magazine had recently published a spread of sexy photographs of adolescent girls. This wasn't an anomaly. Vogue Beauté had recently run similar photos of a model named Dushka, aged 14. Polanski wanted to do his own series for Vogue Homme, shooting four or five different girls from different parts of the world. Before a trip to Los Angeles, a friend gave Roman the phone number of the mother of a teenager who was sent to fit the bill Polanski was looking for. She was very naturally beautiful and very eager to become a model. Polanski went to meet the girl named Samantha at her mother's house. He met her mother, who was herself an aspiring actress, and her stepfather, who worked for a magazine called Marijuana Monthly. Soon, Polanski realized that he had met this girl's sister and mother before, at a club on the Sunset Strip, where he had initially thought the mother was the sister's sister. As for Samantha, Polanski would later write, I was rather disappointed. A good-looking girl, but nothing sensational. Still, he called her house a few days later and went and picked Samantha up for a photo shoot. First, they went into the hills behind her mother's house in the San Fernando Valley, According to Polanski, she bragged about having a boyfriend who had a black belt in karate. Polanski noticed a hickey on her neck. According to him, he asked her if that was from the boyfriend, and she said it was, but it wasn't from karate. 
Polanski shot two rolls of film that day, and later he said that Samantha had no problem posing topless. She wasn't even wearing a bra that day. Samantha later said that she never wore a bra at that time because she didn't really need one. She was only 13. Samantha later said that she took off her shirt because Roman Polanski asked her to. He was an adult, and she was a child, and she was in the habit of doing what adults told her to do. And she thought this was her big opportunity to become famous, and she was afraid to blow it. We'll get me in Vogue Paris, and then maybe I'll get a good part, Samantha thought, as she remembered many years later. One step and you're on your way. That's what we thought it was. A chance. My big shot. They met again a few weeks later for another photo session. In Polanski's car, according to Polanski, Samantha told him that she had had sex with her current boyfriend. And, in fact, that she had first had sex when she was eight with a neighbor boy. Samantha recalled the conversation differently. She said she simply told Polanski that she had had sex twice, which was a lie. She had only done it once, and like a lot of first times, it had been so awkward that she felt like it didn't really count. Polanski says he and Samantha went to Jacqueline Bissett's house, where they shot by the pool until the light disappeared. Polanski says he then thought about going to Jack Nicholson's house, which was on the other side of Mulholland Drive, where there would still be light. Samantha agreed to go to Jack Nicholson's house, although she wasn't so impressed by Nicholson as a star. I wish we were going to the house of Dom DeLuise, say, or Roddy McDowell, she would later write. She had seen Chinatown, but she loved Planet of the Apes. At Nicholson's house, Nicholson wasn't home. Polanski opened a bottle of champagne he found in the fridge, and he and Samantha took their glasses and went outside to make the most of the light. As he shot photos of Samantha in various outfits, Polanski said, I could sense a certain erotic tension between us. At Roman's suggestion, Samantha called her mother to say that she would be late for dinner. Roman got on the phone and talked to Samantha's mother, too. Roman then suggested they take some photos in the jacuzzi. Samantha agreed. Samantha reminded herself in her head that this is what she wanted to do for a living. I am a professional, she thought, and this is what professionals do. Professionals do what the photographer asks. According to Samantha, at Polanski's urging, she took a third of a quaalude. Then she remembered that she hadn't eaten anything that day. She started feeling dizzy. According to Roman, the jacuzzi made Samantha dizzy because, she said, she had asthma. According to Samantha, Roman made an excuse about the light to get into the jacuzzi with her, and when he was in there, naked, he asked her to come closer to him. Then everything hits at once, Samantha would later write. The steam, the heat, the alcohol, the pill, and the panic. Have you ever been touched in a way that made you want to jump right out of your skin? That's when, Samantha says, she lied and said she had asthma. I need to go home and take my medicine, she says she said. To which she says, he told her to go inside and lie down. He says, they then went inside and dried off 
and she said she was feeling better. He says he then began to kiss her. Polanski would later say that he thought she seemed experienced. While they were having sex, Jack Nicholson's girlfriend, Angelica Houston, came home. Polanski says he introduced Samantha to Houston and didn't tell the older woman that they had just had sex, but he thought it was probably obvious. Samantha says that before each of multiple sex acts, she told Roman no. She says that at one point, he asked her if it felt good, and she said that it did. But in her head, the fact that it felt good made her feel awful. She says that when she heard Angelica Houston's voice in the house, she thought, okay, now I can leave. When Roman did finally let her leave the room, Samantha tried to rush past Angelica, hoping she wouldn't see her, but Angelica did, and she said hello. Didn't this woman think it was weird, her friend Roman coming here with a kid? Samantha thought. Did this happen every day? Of course, it did. Maybe not at Jack Nicholson's house. Maybe not by Roman Polanski, although he's always been open about his consensual relationships with girls barely older than Samantha, who he didn't think was a kid. But as we've seen throughout this series, in the 60s and 70s in Hollywood, a lot of adults thought it was perfectly normal to have sex with teenagers. The difference in this case was that Samantha and her family refused to accept this as normal. Maybe this sort of thing was a thing of the recent past, and it wasn't going to be acceptable anymore. And or, maybe, Roman Polanski was just the one who got caught. According to Roman, Samantha talked a lot on the ride home, and Roman suggested that they go see the movie Rocky the following week. According to Roman, when they got to Samantha's house, he hung out with her mom and stepfather for a bit, smoking a joint he had taken from an ashtray at Nicholson's place and showing them the photos he had taken of Samantha at their first photo shoot. According to Samantha, in the car on the way home, Roman asked her not to tell her mother. She said that he said that it would be their little secret. The following evening, while leaving the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, Roman Polanski was arrested on charges of rape. He was quite confused, because he had felt that the encounter with Samantha had been consensual. It wasn't in Samantha's mind, or in the mind of her furious mother, but also, it was illegal for any adult to have sex with anyone under the age of 14. Children can't legally give consent. The case didn't go to trial. Polanski thought he'd win it if it did, because he thought that if Samantha showed up in court, everyone would think, as he did, that she must be at least 18. But Samantha didn't want to go on the stand. She knew it would be totally humiliating. She gave testimony at a grand jury hearing, and that in itself was torture. Both Roman and Samantha had already been subjected to a trial in the press, Polanski was not only the butt of crude jokes as to how his next film would be titled Close Encounters with the Third Grade, but he learned who his friends were. Polanski was temporarily given the cold shoulder by his agents, and when questioned, French Vogue said they'd never given him an assignment. Meanwhile, most articles implied that Samantha and her mom were gold diggers. 
Some suggested she had brought her own quaaludes to Nicholson's house. Others were basically like, how dare she do this to a Holocaust survivor and Manson murder widower? Hasn't he suffered enough? Angelica Houston agreed to be a witness for the prosecution if a drug charge against her was dropped, but her statement was more critical of Samantha than of Roman. She seems sullen, which I thought was a little rude, Houston said of the teenager. She appeared to be kind of one of those little chicks between could be any age up to 25. You know, she did not look like a little scared thing. Of Polanski, Houston said, I don't think he's a bad man. I think he's an unhappy man. Polanski made a plea deal which involved him pleading guilty to one charge of unlawful sex with a minor, and he spent time at a state psychiatric facility, after which he was supposed to be set free on probation. But Polanski was tipped off that the judge in the case was going to change his mind and go back on the deal and subsequently either send Polanski to prison or deport him. Fearing he couldn't trust his life in the hands of the judge, Polanski took matters into his own hands, and on February 1st, 1978, before he could be sentenced, Polanski flew to London, moving on from there to Paris. He has lived abroad, mainly in France, ever since. Shortly after leaving the States, Polanski made a movie out of Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles, a novel that had been recommended to him by Sharon, starring his sometime teenage girlfriend, Natasha Kinski, as the teenage peasant whose life spirals downward when she's raped by an older man. Although a poster for the film bore the tagline, she was born into a world where they called it seduction and not rape. In September 2009, Polanski was arrested while trying to enter Switzerland, and he was held by Swiss authorities until July 2010, when they finally decided not to honor the U.S.'s extradition request. Polanski is now 81 years old. Were he to try to enter the United States today, he'd be put in jail. Samantha, whose married name is Geimer, sued Polanski in 1988 and received a cash settlement. But she spent the past 15 years publicly pleading for the charges to be dropped. In 2008, after watching the documentary Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired, Polanski sent Geimer an email in which he said, I want you to know how sorry I am for having so affected your life. There is much, much more to say about Polanski's life and work than we have time for here. He's absolutely lived one of the biggest Hollywood lives, fascinating because it encompasses so many key moments of the 20th century, and also because so many seemingly contradictory things are simultaneously true about him. He's a genius and a scoundrel, a victim and a victimizer. He's a great filmmaker who has reflected our fears and anxieties back to us like few others have, and he's not shied away from candid self-reflection, even amidst the occasional apparent embellishments in his autobiography, or from putting his own pain into his movies, from Chinatown to Bitter Moon to The Pianist. He has suffered tremendously, and he's also benefited greatly from various double standards which allow important white male artists to exercise privilege without acknowledgement and to be lionized in spite of great faults and crimes. He is, and has been for 80 years, above all else, for better and for worse, a product of his times. 
Next week, we return to the Manson family and follow them in the weeks and months after the murders as they finally make it to Death Valley. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest making his final appearance on this podcast, Rom Bergman, who played Roman Polanski. If you like the podcast, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod. You can rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to us there. We will be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. Oh,